millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. I just have to say before we make that transition, how very grateful I am to all of you. Um, just the fact that as many of you have come to so many of these means the world to me. And the questions that you ask continually challenge me and make me think deeper and the input that you have and the comments that you make. Uh, it's, it's the great privilege of my position in life that I get to learn so much from you in the various, very different circumstances that you're all in. And yet in some ways the same, I mean, we're all trying to teach somebody, even if it's just ourselves, right? And even there, I love the, the way there's the one and the many. There's always the one and the many. It's all the same for everybody, and yet it's different for everybody, right? There's, there's only one way we learn, and yet everybody learns differently. And so if we can capture the one way that everybody learns, then we can adapt to the different ways that the particular person that I'm teaching learns, or the way I learned. Um, so, in fact, I think, I think, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I think it's the case that the more it's the soul during doing the learning, the more it's the same. And the more it's the senses doing the learning, the more difference there is. So people, some people learn better through the ear than through the eye. Some people learn better physically, although I, I don't. Well, obviously, a blind person doesn't learn as well as through the eye as he does through his ear, right? And, we, and part of that is we might be born that way. We might be born with a disposition. Part of it might be the first six months of our life, right? When, when we were interacting with our parents and our mother, one or another of the senses got more of an emphasis. Who knows why? 
I don't know. But, I, but certainly different sensory emphases. But I think when the soul learns, it's always taking the things that the senses give us and seeing an, a Logos incarnate. And it goes through the same process every time. So that's all my way so far of just saying thanks for attending and how much I appreciate it. Another thing I want to thank you for fervently is your prayers. I know that quite a few of you have prayed for me, have prayed for Cersei, and have mentioned that you've prayed for us. And um, I mentioned last week about swimming, uh, how much I need it. And the swimming pool in our neighborhood actually opened on Sunday. So I went swimming Sunday. I got all of, it's embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you, I got all of 10 lengths in. And then I got out and was dizzy and spaced out and got worried about my blood pressure. <laughs> so I got out of the pool and I sat down and recovered myself and drove home. And then yesterday, I doubled. I got 20 lengths in. I'm so excited. I used to do that in five and a half minutes as a kid. <laughs> and then today, I did 24 lengths. And it was nice because the first, the first batch that I jumped, I actually did... I could do four without stopping. And I swim, I swim, for, I, I, don't, I can't swim slowly. So I, when I swim, I swim fairly hard because I was a swim, I was a racer as a kid and I never really learned how to just lollygag as a kid. And, and I never learned how to just loll, you know, swim slowly. I can't do it unless I, well, I mean, if you heard my teammates, they'd say, what do you mean you can't swim slowly? But I can't swim going easy. So it, it it was nice to be able to do four lengths and be able to make it the whole way. So I think I'm going to be okay. And I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for I thank you for your your um, <laughs> moral support and all that. And I'm looking forward to getting those laps back in because just before the crisis, I had got up to I was swimming a good half hour almost every day, which was pretty nice. It was as, as fit as I've been since I was probably 28. Um, I also, I need to say this too. I have to thank you. Many of you have been giving, have made donations and contributions to the Institute during the time that we've been doing this. And this has been, this has, has been, uh, it's, it's, it's free. It's not for charge. It's not meant to be something you have to pay for. And yet a number of you have made donations to the Institute in this time. And I'm so grateful. Some of them have, well, they've all been very generous. And I'm so grateful for that. I think you all understand that we don't know what the future holds at Circe. We don't, we're, we're, we're going to decide this week. Oh, somebody asked to help my back. Absolutely. It, it helped. It helped my back. Just swimming the lousy 10 lengths, which is, again, if you guys know swimming at all, that's an embarrassing confession. But did it help my back? Yes. I, I, feel, I feel a lot better. Um, I, I went to the chiromaniac today. Every two weeks I go, and he, he really does me in. And I was, told by the, I was told by the record keeper that this was the most adjustments <laughs> any one person has ever received. So, I mean, he does my toes, my fingers, my wrists, my ankles, my knees, my hips, every, all the way up. So... I'm a mess, but yeah, it helped my back. And you can see therefore why I need to swim. Anyway, 
So, so thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for participating in this. Thank you for the contributions to the work of the Institute. And most of all, thank you for loving our Lord. This is, can, can I tell you a secret? Katie, this doesn't count yet. I'm not on a question yet. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something more or less in private here that I have, I have taken to telling heads of school and even a few pastors of late that what I have discovered with, with the Christian community is that moms and dads love our Lord Jesus a lot more, and teachers do too. They love our Lord Jesus a lot more than their leaders give them credit for. And what I, what I find is that, is that pastors and headmasters and school leaders and organizational leaders they, they feel this need to always drive the people in their institution, always driving them to give more. In my opinion and in my observation, what I see from the lay Christian community is a deep and profound desire simply to see the glory of Jesus. Just show me the glory of our Lord Jesus and I'll go after it. And that's what I see among you. That's what means so much to me is that, is that you love our Lord so much. And when I think about classical education, I, maybe some of you saw my Facebook post the other day, but I, I explicitly stated I am a Christian first. The classical follows. The cla- I, be, I became a classical educator because I believe that it's more compatible with the Christian faith than modernist education. I don't know why Christians... Um, have so given themselves to imitating this world that they're trying to escape from. I don't understand it. But I believe the primary reason, and, and here don't any of you attack your leaders about this, <laughs> but I believe the primary reason for it is that our leaders are afraid that if they faithfully, uh, let's call it radically since that's a cool term to use, if they, if they make big, hard decisions about the direction of their institutions, they're afraid people will just bail on them. I haven't found that. I find that when I exalt Jesus, when I, when I, when I try to show how our Lord is revealed, makes himself manifest in education, I don't find people bail on that. I find, I find that I, when I started to see some of these things, like, for example, how, how Christ the Logos fills all things, right? And, and so, therefore, um, grammar is full of Christ. Or, or when I started to recognize that human nature, since our Lord Jesus took on human nature, human nature is good, right? I, I find that when I explain that and champion that, First of all, for me, it was a completely transformative experience to discover that, that I believe in total depravity, basically. I believe that human nature is totally depraved, but only in us. If I can put it this way, human nature isn't by nature wicked. By nature, we were created good. And Christ, when he took on human nature, was good. So he didn't become bad by taking on human nature. So human nature isn't bad. It's just in a bad state. In us, right? Anyway, the point being, 
when I, because I love our Lord Jesus, and he is human, that helps me to appreciate the fact that I'm a human, and that my nature, as created by God, is a good and honorable thing, right? That's changed my, that's changed my whole approach to life, because growing up, honestly, I don't think I was taught this, but this is the way I absorbed it. I was taught more or less of a Calvinistic approach to thinking about human nature, which you know, we're totally depraved. Everything about us is evil. We're utterly incapable of doing good. And so the conclusion I drew from that was I am, I am by nature, by, without thinking it, I kind of felt like by the very fact of my existence is a bad thing, right? And then the Lord Jesus comes along and, 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 and kind of recreates us and it's as though he's making a new thing altogether. Well, he's not. He's redeeming human nature. When I'm in heaven, if by the mercy of God I am welcomed into heaven, I'm not going to be a God. I'm going to be a human. Right? I will be like God, and I will be like the angels, but my nature will be a fulfilled human nature. Now, there's mysteries to that, that in a certain sense we will transcend what we think of. Anyway, all of this, the only point I'm trying to make here, <laughs> forgive me, but the only point I'm trying to make is that you all encourage me so much because you love our Lord Jesus. And as one who loves our Lord Jesus and who has seen him change lives, I'm grateful to you for that. And so I thank you for that. And I, and I want to just encourage you to keep, keep the faith, keep on loving him. He, he is so good. He is so good. And if we will make him the object of our affection and the object of our desires, then he'll breathe through us into the people that we love. And he will change our lives and he will heal our families. He will heal our bodies. He will heal everything. Okay, now, I do want then to mention... I'll just say this on Thursday. I don't need to, except one thing. I, I, I want to encourage you, since we're cutting back on our time together, to remember that there's other options. One of them on Thursday is Katie's class, and my understanding is there's still, you can still register for it over the next couple of days. So is that true, Katie? You, um, your class is open until for this week? It's open, I think, until the second session, which is on Thursday. So there's two more days to sign up. Okay. And the, the first class that people missed, they can watch the video and read the text chat. But then from there, you'd have to, you know, keep. Yeah. Yeah. And we're totally unforgiving about people signing up late. You can't do it. So. Um, so by Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And it's a class on beauty, in case anybody um, doesn't, doesn't know what, that, what we're talking about. Um, okay, so on Thursday, I'll talk about other options. And if you want, you can come in late to avoid that. But now, what we've been talking about the last couple sessions is this whole question of how do you handle the crisis? How do you handle the, the coronavirus crisis, the COVID-19 crisis? The, I've, I've heard it called the CCP virus. Um, the Chinese Communist Party virus. That's kind of catchy. Um, anyway, this crisis that we're going through. The thing about it is, it's like any other crisis, right? Except 
that for some people, it's more intense. For all of us, it's more, I was going to say for all of us, it's more drawn out, but not compared to a terrible disease, for example. But for all of us, it's more global, right? And so it's so interesting because that opens up a whole vast space of uncertainty, doesn't it? We don't know what's going to happen to the global economy. We don't know what's going to happen to the American economy. We don't know what's going to happen to so many. And that just creates this terrible uncertainty. And I think it's safe to say that there's two things that are worst about a crisis. One is that they hurt. Right? They just flat out hurt. Body, soul, and spirit. They hurt. And the second thing is, well, let me add something there. Because they hurt, they humiliate. We don't, we don't like the risk of not looking up to this, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's me thinking just about myself. But we don't, we don't, I don't think anybody likes looking like they can't handle pain, right? So then what do we do? We act like we can handle it. Well, maybe we need to look really closely at the at the uh, the Beatitudes, because our Lord does not tell us, "Blessed are those who can handle lots of pain." Interestingly, He does say in the very last Beatitude, "Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you for righteousness' sake. Rejoice in that day and be exceedingly glad." But why? We're back to that same basic point. Great is your reward in heaven. Don't pretend it doesn't hurt, though. It hurts. The second of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And so I think it's important to remember that when we think about the crisis. So the first thing about any crisis is that there's pain, physical, psychological, spiritual, but there's pain, and we don't like to. We don't like to endure pain, but we especially don't like to admit that pain is hurting us, bringing us down even. But the second thing is that any crisis, crisis I might have mentioned earlier, literally, it's a Greek word, crisis. And it literally means, let's say, moment of decision, decision point. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's that time in which you have no choice but to make a consequential decision. And you have to make that consequential decision always with inadequate knowledge. There is, there is no such thing as a situation where you can make a decision with full knowledge. Now, we can, generally speaking, most of the decisions we make, we have enough knowledge. Right, I can I can decide what I'm going to wear tomorrow, and I know what I have in my closet. And and if my house burns down, then I know that my priority won't be to get dressed anyway. At least it won't be to worry about what I'm wearing. Right. So there's there's these parameters of knowledge, right? But when you come to a crisis, what makes it a crisis is how hard the decision is, and you combine how hard the decision is 
with the fact that it hurts. And now we're confronted with the fundamental unbearable reality of being dead, of being human beings, zombies, like we talked about the other day. So we come to this, <laughs> we come to this context and we say, well, how do I handle it then? I do think that it's not an accident that the Beatitudes begin our Lord's ministry. And I also don't think it's an accident that Jesus doesn't say, although some modern translations do, say, happy are you when. I don't want to go into the, the uh, linguistics of this, but happy is an Anglo-Saxon word, and it comes from hap, which basically means luck, right? Happenstance, what happened, right? All of these words are, are connected. It's like fortune in, in, in some languages. You're fortunate. You're not happy. And it's not just a feeling. You're blessed. And the fundamental difference is that it's deep. It's ontological. It has to do with the very quality of your being. If you are a blessed person, it doesn't primarily mean you feel good. It primarily means, I'm going to put it right out there. It primarily means you are good. You're what you're supposed to be. You're what you're created to be. And our Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this, this is a phrase that's puzzled me in some way. It still does, but it's puzzled me my whole life. That, that phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, has drawn more thought out of me than, than almost any other. Because, you know, you, you can hear somebody give a, a simile. That means you're humble. Well, great. Then why didn't he say that? Who's this Jesus think he is? Why can't he just say, blessed are the humble? And maybe that's exactly right, but then I don't understand humility well enough, so it doesn't solve the problem for me. What does he mean by blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, I don't know. I don't know what blessed are the poor in spirit means. But this much I'm sure of. That if I'm poor in spirit, I don't walk up to somebody else boastfully offering them out of my resources what I can give them to solve their problems. I don't walk into the presence of God and say, behold, I have arrived. Right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like I'm all that. And so maybe in that sense, it's humility. Okay, I get that in that sense. But if I want to be blessed by and in this particular crisis, then I can't go on to Facebook and tell the world about the resources that I am to them. Right? I, I can't go up to my neighbor and tell them how smart I am and how I've worked out what to do. That's just, that's just not going to lead to blessedness. I can't go around sprinkling the golden coins of my soul around my neighborhood. What I can do is humbly offer them the resurrected Christ. I humbly can offer them the kingdom of God. 
why can I do that? Because if I'm if I'm poor in spirit, then the then the kingdom of God is mine. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which is an amazing thought, because what does our Lord teach us to pray in the fundamental prayer that He teaches us? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. And then, and that, and the next, the previous chapter, one chapter before that, he tells us how we can participate in that kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So, as you go through any crisis, check your riches at the door. Set them down, and then go in into the temple, into the holy of holies, and sit there under the wings of the cherubim. And gaze on Christ and, and become like him by gazing on him. Now, I actually wrote down for this handling the crisis, the note Genesis 1. And then I noticed in the comments, um, he mean, mentioned quite often topics or ideas from Genesis. Oh, wondered if he recently studied that or read a book. I read Genesis 1 as often as I possibly can. And... Um, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I pretty well live there. I mean, the, those three chapters, in my view, are the whole Bible condensed, and the rest of the Bible kind of explains what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 say. By the way, therefore, they're the whole of human life condensed. And certainly, it's everything you need to know about teaching. I have never, ever, ever learned anything valuable about teaching that I couldn't go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and say, oh, look what God did, right? Anything I've ever learned about, about teaching that, that, in fact, it's to the point now where that's my standardized test, right? I'm going to go back. If I think of an idea about teaching, and then I'm going to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I'm going to, is it in there anywhere? Sometimes I have to, it's, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes it's not sitting there obviously on the surface, and you might go, hold on. But, but Genesis 1. Dealing with a crisis, you'd think, this is, there's no sin in the world. How could this have anything to do with the crisis? Well, I don't know if there's, um, well, let me put it this way. Some theologians believe that man has not sinned, but the evil one has entered the scene. Somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And so the earth is without form and void because, you know, it says God created the heavens and the earth and the earth is without form. Some people believe there's a gap there. You can, you can believe that or not based on your best understanding. I don't think it's crucial to the point I'm about to make. But what I do believe is that at the beginning of Genesis in verses 1 and 2, we are in a situation where, as the Bible says, it's without form and void. And so whether you want to call that a crisis or not, God's intention is manifestly to take the void and fill it and to take the formless and form it. And I want to present, propose to you that that's what our spiritual life is. That is what our responsibility is in this world, is to fill the void, the emptiness of our own soul, of our community, of the world we live in, to fill the emptiness and bring order to it. 
And so we've used the term dominion in the course of our, our, our couple months together. And one of the things I've even gone so far as to argue is that there's six fundamental desires and the most fundamental desire, no, the, no, well, the, the dot one desire is the desire for union with God. But that desire for union with God manifests itself in our desire to share in his dominion. Because that's what he created us for. And one of the big problems about dealing with this crisis or any crisis is, as I said, the unknown. Now, if something can hurt you against your will, you don't have dominion over it, do you? And if something is unclear to you or uncertain to you, you don't know what's happening, you don't have dominion over it, do you? And so what we fundamentally feel in this crisis is a loss of dominion. How do we take it back? I think the pattern is laid for us in Genesis 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin at the end. God ends his creative act, his taking of dominion over the creation by creating it, of course. That's how he takes dominion. But, the, but he ends that week by resting. There's a crucial, crucial distinction in my view here. We have to begin our week by entering into his rest, not end it. We have to begin the week uniting ourselves to Christ, being baptized into Christ, um, being resurrected with Christ. Right? This is what Sunday is about in the Christian church. It's about uniting yourself to Christ in his death and his, and his well, in his baptism even, in his, in, his, in his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascent into heaven and his sitting at the right hand and even his second and glorious coming. Every week, we should begin our week by uniting ourselves with Christ in that sequence of events because then we are resting with him at the right hand of the Father, in him. And when we do that, we've gone into the Holy of Holies. And when we do that, we can carry out what we went in there to get, which includes rest. It also includes manna, right? In the Ark of the Covenant is the manna. Do you understand? This is something that just is deeply, deeply, deeply um, moved me. In, in, at church, I'm doing a class on the Lord's Prayer and comparing it with the temple, showing how it, how it moves out. from it, it, It's patterned on the temple, the sequence. And one of the things he says is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, think about this. We say, our Father... And when we say our father, we unite ourselves with Christ and we say we can call him father because we're united to Jesus and Jesus calls him father, right? So he's our father. How about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? He so profoundly identifies with us that he considers our debts his debts and tells us to forgive, to ask for forgiveness for them. But think of this then. He also says, as we forgive our debtors, 
we are united with Christ. It's not just, he doesn't, we don't say, as I forgive my debtors. We say, as we, as we forgive our debtors. And the we includes Jesus and the rest of us. And we are, we are enabled by our Lord Jesus to bring forgiveness into the world, at least in two ways. One is, having been forgiven such horrifying sinfulness ourselves, we then can forgive others for the much lesser things they do against us. Nobody's ever sinned against me anything like I've sinned against God. But there's a second thing, and I know there's some controversy about what exactly this means, but it's stated so you can you know, understand it within your tradition. But he says to the apostles, those whose sins you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. Now, those are Jesus' words. So as I said, you can interpret that and understand that in the light of the tradition that you're a part of. I know, for example, Martin Luther has a very different understanding of that than Thomas Aquinas, and certainly uh, um, Gregory Palamas has a different understanding than St. Thomas Aquinas. I get that. Okay. Nonetheless, you can't escape those words. He has given us the authority to forgive the sins of the world. And when we go into the holy place, into the holy of holies, and we receive the manna, and we sprinkle the blood of the altar, on the altar, well, he does, and we join in his sprinkling. We carry that out with us into the world. We bring his forgiveness into the world. Now, let me just say, I think it's really important that you can't forgive people who don't sin against you. That means that if we are praying with Jesus as we forgive our debtors, that means we are allowing ourselves to be put in situations where people can hurt us. And when they do, we are forgiving them. In this situation that we're all in right now, I cannot believe that among us there haven't been at least times of bitterness, at least at least moves in our hearts toward bitterness, toward, toward resenting the loss and the pain that we're feeling. And when, we, when that happens, we start looking for an object for our bitterness, don't we? If you're feeling bitter, this is, this is what I, or just angry even, I would urge you to take that anger and direct it at God, not at man with this extreme qualification. If you direct that anger at God, tell him. Don't just be mad at him and pout. Tell him. Tell him that this hurts too much, that this isn't fair. Bring it to him. And like a child, just beat on your father's chest. Tell him. You can take it. So Genesis 1 gives us a pattern. But I want to urge you to begin with the end, which is rest. 
And rest means at least forgiveness. If we don't forgive, we are tearing ourselves apart. We have to forgive our governors. We have to forgive our president. We have to forgive the store that wouldn't open for us. We have to forgive all these people that have hurt us. We have to, some of us are already might have to forgive or will have to forgive people who made somebody that we love or even ourselves sick. We have to forgive. We have to forgive people who disagree with us. We have to forgive people who, who put their disagreement with us in offensive terms. We have to forgive. And when we do, we proclaim the word of God, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So follow Genesis 1. Follow that pattern. Look at how God spends day by day separating things, bringing them back together in a controlled way. But begin it all with rest. Because I don't think we can think clearly when we're in an anxious state, when we're in a bitter state. We just, I can't. I can't think clearly when I'm, when I'm, I, mean, I have a hard time thinking clearly when, when, I, when, when I'm not angry, when, just because there's too much information. But we have to, we have to forgive. Um, I'll end with that for today. Begin, enter into his rest, and then, and then enter into the, the busy week, um, the work of the week, but not from yourself, his strength working through you. Okay, um, Katie, questions? And on right. Thursday, we'll have one last session on, on, on the crisis now that it's coming, hopefully, beginning to come to an end. Or maybe historians will laugh that anybody dared think that now, who knows? Anyway, Katie. Okay, so I have a few questions for you, but I don't have five. So if anyone has questions, do feel free well, to I've got text them. I can ask that, that I've collected over time too. Katie's actually away from me right now. She's she's left me for the week and is off in Virginia somewhere. So Yes, it's quite traumatizing. Pardon? I said yes, it's quite traumatizing to you. <laughs> it is. Sorry for me. <laughs> All right, here's a question for you. Um, this says that Andrea Lipinski said in her recent LTW1 intensive class that first we have to think about the tools before we can think with the tools. Um, can you comment on this? What exactly does it mean? Are we talking about facts, ideas, skills? Can you um, explain more why she would have said that? Or if you agree? Yes, I agree. I just have to remember what it means. Um, if you're going to learn, for example, the tool of using similes, if you're going to learn the tool of similes, okay, a simile is a tool of expression. You have to observe it first before you can make one, right? You, you have to, when you, when you make a simile, you're imitating a thought process. So first you have to see similes. If you're going to, if you're going to learn how to write a sentence, first you have to see it or hear a sentence, right? Um, all of us speak the language that we speak because we heard other people speak it. And so, in so we're all just cheap imitators, every one of us. None of us has an original word to us, except you know, weird ones that we don't use publicly. So, so all of us are just cheap imitators when it comes to language. 
but first you had before you could use a word before you could use a structure before you could use a form before you could use a concept you had to think about it you had to observe it you had to absorb it you had to take it in yeah absolutely it's my medic and so in the lost tools of writing the way the way it always works is that you will be given types you'll be given specific examples of a given tool and you will think about that tool and then by thinking about it, primarily what we mean is you'll observe it, you'll compare types with each other, and you will come to understand it well enough that you can say, this is what it is, and this is how I use it. Even there, probably she's getting at this. There's a big difference between knowing what the simile is and being able to make a simile, right? And so, so first, basically, let's just say you have to define the simile, and later on, you can, you can use the simile. Now, that's, you can go too far with that, but basically, you have to understand what the thing is before you can consciously use and control it. So that's, that's probably what she meant by first, you have to think about it, and, and then you can use it. That doesn't mean you ever stop thinking about it. You certainly think about it while you're using it. And it doesn't mean that you can't use it a little bit while you're thinking about it. But the better you understand it, the better you use it, and the better you can assess your use of it. But you'll always have more to learn about. If you spent the rest of your life thinking about nothing but the nature of similes, you'd become a good writer. Are you stopping me after my minute, Katie? Well, you kind of ignored me stopping you. Shall I, should I, do you want me to? You should, you should say, hey, your minute's up so that I'll know that you're telling me and you won't think I'm ignoring you. All right. Sounds good. Expectations. Good to be clarified. Okay. Um, Okay. I have one other question for you and then everyone else can have a free for all asking if they want. Um, Foreign languages. How many are too many? When do you add more than just Latin? When, when is the readiness there? How do you assess the readiness? What do we do for foreign languages? I mean, <laughs> the, the only trouble with foreign languages is time. There, there are almost no skills that are more valuable than learning a foreign language. To learn a foreign language gives you, it's, it's is it less world creating than reading? I'm not sure. But if you can speak and think in a foreign language, you can perceive the world in a different way. Therefore, I would say there can't be too many foreign languages in a human's mind, but you could disproportionately study foreign languages and thereby neglect other things that are important. So, you know, you, you, I wouldn't worry about the number of foreign languages. I would worry about whether you're fulfilling your other duties. As far as when can you start Latin, I have a two-year-old granddaughter that I work with on it. Um, I say things like Wale. I say things like Te Amo. She left with Katie, in fact, and, and as she was leaving, I said, Wale, and she said, Wale, and I said, Wale, and she said, I already said it. <laughs> <laughs> Time's up. Can't start <laughs> Great. Okay. I don't have any more questions for you. Was there another question in that one? I think there was one more question in that one that I didn't address. In the chat box? 
in that oh, um, the person was just wondering when to add on another language, like Latin and then yeah. Greek, but then like how to know when it's time to add another one. Foreign languages are like musical instruments. They're so different. I, I, I would start as many as you can, as early as you can. If you've got Arabic neighbors, get them coming over and spending an hour talking to your kids every day. If you've got German neighbors, have them come over. If you have Roman Latin neighbors, get them over to speak Latin. If you've got uh, ancient Greek neighbors, tell them to come and hang out with your kid. Get as much as you can in the time that you have. But don't get greedy, right? I mean, just do what you can in the time that you have. And um, um, I think that's, that's my whole answer to the question. It, 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 but they don't compete with each other very much. When you get older, they do. Like right now, it's really hard for me to keep all. I, I drift into, I used to know German so, sort of, so I drift into Germanic thinking sometimes, or else now it's, it's to the point where if I'm thinking or talking in German and I can't remember what to say, my mind goes to Latin, right? Because you, your mind is always looking for solutions to problems. But that's my fault. I should have watched more German television. But they're very different. Kids don't have much of a problem differentiating. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you run into things like that. In fact, I, I, I almost wonder if, if, if it wouldn't be more advantageous for a little kid to learn Arabic instead of um, French, say, uh, because it's so different. And the similarity of French to English, both, well, both having a pretty strong degree of Latin, let's say Latin, French and Spanish. Um, the similarities between French and Spanish make the two, they're still different instruments, but less, perhaps less valuable in terms of the skills of a different language. It, it would be like learning the cello and learning the violin. Is that both valuable? Absolutely. But I think musically speaking, perception wise, there's probably more value learning the violin and the piano, because there's two very different perceptive powers coming in there. Um, that's, I don't know music well enough to make that, that um, assertive. I use that to illustrate, not to prove. So <laughs> I may be completely wrong. Yeah, reading right to left is a, is a big difference. Yeah, no reason not to do Hebrew. No reason not to do Hebrew. In fact, plenty of reasons to do Hebrew. The only thing I'll say about Hebrew is be careful. As Christians, um, you want to be careful about the Hebrew Bible because what's not commonly known is that the Hebrew Bible that was used for, for much of the last few translations, last couple centuries of translations, was the Hebrew Bible put together by the Jewish community after they crucified Christ. And so there's differences. There are passages they just lifted and removed. And the, we're, the reason we know that now is because they discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls some of those passages from before the time of Christ, and it's much more vivid, much more obvious that there are messianic prophecies taking place in some of these passages. So, um, you know, some people, some people say that the... the um, the, the original Hebrew is the, the inspired language of the Old Testament. There's more questions in that than it might sound like at first. But by all means, learn Hebrew. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, 
New question. If understanding can be assessed by the quality of their questions, do we explicitly ask our students to come up with questions as part of an exercise? Yes. Yes. So, so here's, here's, I was talking with somebody who's got a master's in education and was studying a good master's actually, um, who was studying a history of assessment and he wanted to know how did they assess, let's say in the 12th century. You know how they would assess you in geometry in the 12th century? You had to write your own textbook. Not exactly, but I mean, you had to, you had to rewrite. You had to write Euclid's geometry as though you were teaching it to somebody. Now, I don't know how often they did that, and, and I find it a little bit unbelievable because paper was so expensive. Maybe they had to do it orally. I'm not sure. Um, but oral exams are the most powerful way to assess most students. And the best skill set is the questions that they're asking and then their ability to answer them. So, so um, if understanding can be assessed by questions, do we explicitly ask our students to come up with questions? I absolutely think that you should do that. When I teach reading, well, let me put it this way. If you're not asking your own questions when you read, you're not actually reading. You're, you're, just, you're just following words on a page for somebody else's sake. You're not going to remember it. You're not going to care about it. It's, it. it's nothing to you. But if you're asking your own questions, now you're reading. Because reading is not moving your eyes across a page. Reading is interpreting a page. Reading is asking, what does this mean? Reading is asking, how does he do that? Right? That's what reading is. It's a dialogue with the person that wrote that page. And if it doesn't have the two sides, the child isn't reading. Um, so yes, and, and, and that's why in classical rhetoric, invention is such a big deal. And that's why Lost Tools of Writing provides tremendous reading tools because it gives you these universal questions, classical rhetoric does, it gives you these universal questions, and then they will gradually internalize those questions, realizing, that they're always asking them. They're not just school questions. And then they'll, then they'll spill out into everything and they'll become super annoying because they'll constantly ask those same questions in the same way. But that's okay, they'll outgrow that, they'll outgrow that too. It's kind of like the, the butter, the, the caterpillar in a, in a cocoon. Um, I wondered if considering human or childish nature, if we were actually unteaching a skill in a small child, by limiting them in left to right when they may be able to naturally pick up right to left. I assume this is in regard to reading. And in that case, I would say probably so. If you can give, that's another thing about Arabic. I mean, it's not like, it's not like they're a different species of human. Right? They just learned right to left. Hebrew, they learned right to left. I, what, isn't it Chinese? Mandarin, doesn't that go right to left and then down or up or something? I forget. I think some actually go back and forth. That'd be really interesting. I bet if you could read back and forth in a foreign language, speed reading would be a lot easier in your own language. But I bet it would. There's look, here's the thing. Magical things happen in the human mind when you teach a child how to read. The trouble that we have is that we reduce everything to testable. And that's detestable. <laughs> um, it really is. I want to read something. Katie, you got you to gotta bear with me for a second. I want to read something to you all that's going to take a couple minutes to read from one of the best books ever written on the 20th century, ever written on teaching. And it's a book called The Art of Teaching by Gilbert Hyatt, 
which I strongly recommend to all of you, The Art of Teaching by Gilbert Hyatt. He wrote this book. The one I have in my hand belonged to, as you can perhaps see right here, my father-in-law, Robert E. Saner, OCE. That's Karen's dad. He owned this book when he was in Teachers College in Canada in the 50s. It was published, this one, in 1957 by Vintage Books. Um, first edition, September 1950. So this book is, is how 70 years old. And in it, in 1950, you might be aware of this, that they were just then coming up with this horrifying new way of grading kids called standardized testing. He gives a description in here of what the reader's mind does when they read for a standardized test. And it's, how can I put this? It's, it's almost unarguable. It's, it's, um, You wonder how on earth, apart from just money and, some, um, and the low priority placed on learning in schools, they ever went ahead and, and let those tests happen. And now I can't find it. Um, here we go. He talks about how to, how to grade students' writing. Then he says, uh, he talks about the importance of questioning. I think I might have jumped past it. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry to do this to you. Here we go. I found it. I found it. Okay. Teaching is classroom work as opposed to homework. Okay. The real job for which teachers are trained and paid is to help the young to learn. It should not be necessary also to make them learn. <laughs> And then he talks about where resistance to learning comes from. And then he says, meanwhile, however, how is the teacher to make his class learn? Much of it depends on his own brains and character. The obvious method of discovering whether the class has studied is to ask them questions. Written questions with written answers or tests, quizzes or examinations. Horrible words. My soul sickens at their very sound. I sat so many scores of them, and I have marked so many hundreds of them. Yet I have never been able to think of a substitute and have yet to meet anyone else who has. Thinking back over the history of education, it strikes me as interesting that in other times when people were, were well-educated, the higher examinations were all oral. The Greeks and Romans had excellent schools, and then he goes into it. Okay. Um, then he says, the written examination does not seem to be heard of until the 19th century. Perhaps it goes with the enormous increase in population and with the elaboration of modern industrial techniques. A room full of candidates for a state examination, timed exactly by electric clocks and supervised by watchful foremen, resembles nothing so much as an assembly line at the Ford Works. This is proved by the fact that specialists in educational technique, don't you just love that phrase? Specialists in educational technique are getting closer and closer to the production of an examination system which can be run like a machine. Now here's where you get some cute dated stuff, but anyway, can be run like a machine. 
Their aim is to produce a series of wholly objective tests of learning and intelligence comparable to the laboratory tests of blood and lymph and tissue, which are made by the big hospitals for hundreds of different patients who never see the examiner, but merely receive his verdict. The papers are made up by an expert, but marked on the assembly line technique. Now notice what just happened. All of a sudden we had this vast gapping take place. An expert is way up here making the test. The person examining the test, an assembly line person. Think what just happened to the teacher, okay? The expert merely devises the questions and put down the, puts down the right answer and three wrong ones for each question. He has to explain this because at that time this was an inconceivably weird idea. The right answer is there on the paper. The examinees have only to recognize it. They look over the four possible answers. They write down a number, one, two, three, or four, corresponding to the answer they choose. Excuse me. Of course, now we have A, B, C, and D. Then a staff of girls, trained like lamp testers in a factory, runs through each paper, matching the numbers with a master list, which gives the right number for the correct answer to each question. The wrong answers are subtracted from the right ones. A percentage is deducted for successful guessing. The result is a candidate's mark. From the teacher's point of view, this is delightfully easy. For testing memory work, it is very useful. But at the level above memorization, these tests are deceptive. That's a really polite way to say it. These tests are deceptive. Suppose the examination is on the New Testament. Do please remember it's 1950. I understand there would never be such a thing in the modern school. The first question runs, Peter was, one, a soldier, two, rich Pharisee, three, poor fisherman, four, well-to-do farmer. These answers are set out as though they were equal. Whew, let that one sink in. These answers are set out as though they were equal. Whoever answers three, poor fisherman, is right. Whoever answers one or four, soldier or well-to-do farmer, has something to be said for him. But anyone who says two, rich Pharisee, ought to be not merely marked wrong, but penalized several points. How many? As we ask that, the subjective factor rears its ugly head. The teacher must estimate the intelligence and the application the pupil has been showing, his grasp of the whole concept. More and more, he must do that as the work he teaches rises higher and higher above memorizing. Okay. In other words, the, the farther removed from memorizing to actual thinking, the more you need to measure, estimate, intelligence, application, and grasp of the whole subject. As his understanding becomes creative understanding of a large and complex pattern of thought. In other words, I'll cut to the chase. If you want to teach a large and complex pattern of thought, standardized testing will ruin that. He goes into detail. 
a test entirely composed of such questions must fatally alter the student's attitude to the work he is doing. Let that sink in again. Just, just let that float around. A test entirely composed of such questions must fatally alter the student's attitude to the work he is doing. Now imagine that he has to take those tests multiple times every year, that his future depends on tests like that, and ask, is that also going to alter his attitude to the work he is doing? He goes on, because he must, for the purposes of the test, See it as a conjuries of unrelated little facts. Napoleon made Fouché. Napoleon compelled Austria. Napoleon divorced Josephine. And yet the sense which teachers must strive hardest to develop in their students is the sense of structure. The power of grasping a broad historical process a large geographical nexus, the plot and purpose of a great book. As students become more inured to this type of examination, their attention is shifted away from these broader questions to the atomic facts, which can be learned almost entirely without real knowledge and real education. In other words, you can do great on this test and be completely uneducated. It goes on. It's on page 120 of The Art of Teaching by, by Gilbert Hyatt. It's that and Jacques Barzun in his book, The House of Intellect, writes an appendix about just the practical consequences of standardized tests. They're fatal. They're the most powerful weapon the devil himself has used to de-educate America, just to put it humbly. And it's 10.02. What question was I answering? Does anybody remember? Katie, did you want to add anything about, uh, was, is it about testing or did you want to add anything about that? Or, would it, or anything? Are you responding to the message I sent you a little while ago? Yes, but I'm also like responding to the fact that I've talked for a long time and gone over again and, and you get a, you should have a chance to talk. Oh, I was going to say, um, the question, the question about using questions to assess, I've had a lot of people ask me questions about that in the individual consultations that I do. And I wanted to say two things. One, if you're using those LTW questions, the five common topics to teach and model how to ask good questions, then you can have the students do their own Socratic conversations and um, write questions. I have my students do one question per page as they read. And then when they come together, they've got a list of questions. And what's really good about that is if they each bring up their question to the group and then the group discusses it until it's answered, then they start to self-filter. And over time, they gradually intuitively figure out what better questions are because those are the questions that get talked about longer and that their, their classmates want to discuss with them. Mm -hmm. So you'll find that if you do this consistently, they're always asking questions and then they're always discussing their own questions with each other. They will self-filter the bad questions and pick out the good ones. So it really doesn't take as much effort as you would think it would in teaching them how to ask really good questions. I really appreciate you saying that, especially your point about it doesn't take as much effort. 
one of my complaints about modern education, the standardized testing, it drives teachers crazy, even if they don't know it, because of all the work that you have to do to make students want to learn when the test undercuts everything you're trying to do. Teaching is so unbearably difficult in the modern school. If we teach them classically and we begin with Christ's rest, I'm just going to put it out there. It's a lot easier. Not only is it way more effective, but it's easier because it works with human nature and it works with the way God made us. And Katie's point is really good that you could you teach these kids these questions and they're thinking together. They don't want to, they don't, well, they don't want to look dumb. So they're going to learn how to answer these questions and ask these questions over time. And they're going to do it together. And all this while you're respecting their opinions, you're letting them make mistakes and work them out and polish each other. And wonderful things happen. It might be worth adding that one of the things I always found valuable when I taught kids reading, or when, I'm sorry, when we read books together, was um, the highlighting system. I have kids highlight in blue lines they particularly like. And sometimes in a class, maybe we don't have time to get into a deep philosophical discussion, but I'll just say, well, let's share our blues with each other. And then they start sharing with each other lines that impress them. And now it's not so much an objective question from the text, it's actually a subjective opinion about the text. But in this case, it can't be wrong because it's an act of appreciation. Don't do this too much. Don't replace a close read with this. But one of the things you do want them to do is notice the artistry of a writer and notice when, artists, when a writer explains, expresses himself really well. So I like to highlight things in blue. Let me just, let me just see if, if I have anything in this book in blue. Here's something I highlighted in blue. Communication is one of the basic activities of the human race. It is a skill through which men make ma magnificent successes and startling failures. An art without which genius is dumb, power brutal and aimless, mankind a planet load of squabbling tribes. Communication is an essential function of civilizations. Teaching is only one of the many occupations that depend upon it and depend upon it absolutely. In other words, communication matters, right? So, Katie, thank you for that point. And let me just add that Katie did that in a culture where the kids did not speak the same language <laughs> as each other from their heritage, right? They were, the classes were in English, but there were kids in that class who spoke, what, Luganda, Arabic, in, uh, Hindi, what else? What? There were 52 different languages represented in my K through 12 students. Golly. Which and made it really fun. I'll bet. And of course, one of the, the school's goals was that every kid had to graduate fluent in all 52 languages. <laughs> to the earlier question. <laughs> I jest, of course. Well, I'm going to end. Uh -huh. I'm going to end with just the closing reflection that I started early on saying something about the delight of the one and the many in harmony. And, you know, when it comes to cultures, when it comes to languages, when it comes to the human mind, when it comes to the soul, when it comes to, to teaching and communication generally, the amazing thing about it is that if we will put 
Christ the Logos, the son of the solar system, if we will put him in the exalted place he has earned, in the exalted place he deserves, the Father will be pleased, and he will respect that. He will appreciate that, and he will come alongside us, and he will bless what we do. We don't have to get all our methods and techniques right. What we have to do is get Christ exalted above all, and then just follow him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe that then that will give you insight into the, the look, I, I'm going to put it this way. In my opinion, that will lead you on the path to a classical education. But I'm going to say this, even if it doesn't, what would happen in the education you're giving is that the garbage, no, is that the stuff that you're using to do the teaching would still, would still be something he uses and would become extraordinary. And so maybe I've made a big mistake. Maybe I think classical education is so great because in my experience, Christ has blessed and filled it. And maybe I've made the mistake of thinking it's the seven liberal arts. Maybe it's just Jesus. Maybe it is. I'm willing to accept that. Right now, I think that Christ is better manifested in the teaching of the seven liberal arts, but I'm willing to have that challenged because it's Christ I want to see exalted because he's good and he loves us. And if we, can, if we can attain union with God in Christ, then we're going to be able to handle this crisis. We're, we're not, we're not going to get through this by the skin of our teeth. We're going to get through this triumphantly. Not, not, what's the, not triumphalistically, but triumphantly. Because he's conquered the devil. He's conquered death. He's conquered everything and given it all to us. So I want to end with that. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Thank you for the time you've been giving to me over these months, these last couple of months, and, and making my virus crisis so much richer. I, I cannot tell you how thankful I am to you for that. And I'll see you on Thursday. And on Thursday, I'm going to talk one last time about, about the uh, handling this crisis, and I'm going to talk about specific things that come under physical, psychological, and spiritual, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it with a list so it'll only take me the 15 minutes, and then I'll be done. Before you close out, could you, some people have been messaging me asking about the conference. Could you let people know if there's an update on that? You mean our summer conference? Yeah. Right. Man. We haven't been able yet to make a final decision. We will. We've said by June 1st, so we will this week. Um, June 1st, what day of the week is that? That's next Monday. We will announce what we're doing on Monday, June 1st. Um, I am hoping to meet with a military risk management guy this week to just calibrate everything. But I'm torn between two things. I'm, I, on the one hand, the, the yearning by our whole community to get together and physically see each other and interact with each other is so great. And on the other hand, 
we still don't know so much. And the latest, I mean, this, this is a thought that's gone through my mind, is that if you go with the latest CDC estimates, then if we have the conference, one person who comes to it is going to die. And that's a really, really hard thought to process. So please pray that God will give us wisdom, because what doesn't go with that is that if we don't do the conference, <laughs> nobody will die, right? I mean, that's, that's what's so difficult about this. Maybe we're going to contribute to somebody at the hotel, just to be melodramatic. Maybe somebody at the hotel is going to fall into despair, because even those guys wouldn't come, right? I mean, we just... We need, we need prayer. We need wisdom that, that we simply don't have. What I'd really like is if an angel from heaven would visit and tell all of us exactly what to do. So if you want to ask for that, I'm, I'm open to it. But, um, you know, that's typically the Lord expects us to grow up, which I kind of resent, but I have to accept it. So anyway, that's, that's where things stand. We will have a decision for you. Yes, all our days are... All our days are counted, yes. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm going to kill one of you. <laughs> oh, boy. Right? Teach us the number of days that, I, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Boy, it's, just a, it's, a, it's the hardest decision I've had to make um, professionally, I'd have to say, probably in my whole life. Nah, maybe not. I don't know. It's up there, though. It's way out there. And I so appreciate all of you. So, yeah, pray for us. And, and um, I, I mean, if any of you are registered for the conference and have an opinion, let us know your opinion. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. And may that kingdom come before the conference. <laughs> or during it. That'd be great, right? During the conference. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.